0: Chapter 3 of The Social War of 1900, or The Conspirators and Lovers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Social War of 1900, or The Conspirators and Lovers, by Simon Landis. Chapter 3 Deacon Stew Raves at Lucinda's Love for Victor. Victor Juno, after arriving at his home, discovered that his right arm was excruciatingly painful. He dispatched his coach to the spot where the dreadful accident happened to General Washington Armington and his lovely daughter Lucinda, requesting his coachman to serve them to their liking, and telling the latter to make an apology to them for not accompanying the coach, as unavoidable circumstances prevented his attendance at that moment. He sent for a brother physician who discovered a neglected compound fracture of Victor's arm, which was already swollen to alarming dimensions, and lest he instantly retire to bed, mortification might end his days suddenly. Notwithstanding this most painful condition, which was brought about through the humanitarian act of saving and restoring to life, the angelic form of a creature whose very existence was a gigantic balm of Gilead to the lacerated body of our hero, and in a half-delirious state of mind, he felt like leaping mountains to raise prostrate female forms, and to become blessed with hymnial joys of the most glorious character. But his imagination soon forsook him, and a raging fever, accompanied by the most violent deadly delirium, ensued, which lasted a fortnight. It may be interesting to learn that Victor Juno was a perfectly sound man of magnificently formed dimensions erect in stature, six feet in his stockings, and, in fact, he was almost godlike in every feature. His face was of the Roman caste, with a most happy and indomitably energetic and affectionate disposition. He possessed a full, round and well-proportioned forehead, with eyes black and like sparkling diamonds. Nose, mouth, chin, cheeks and complexion in the image of God, or after the acme of perfection. The whole central globe of the soul surrounded with Hyperion curls, which hung gracefully over the superbly shaped head, and his trunk and extremities harmonized with these features. Victor Juno had many warm friends, although there were few who dared, in such perilous sectarian times, stand by him openly, which he regretted very much. But yet he was most hopeful of living down all opposition, and conquering every element of strife. However kind, loving and generous he was toward friend and foe, he possessed the faculty of hardening his manly heart toward everybody if such was necessary to gain a natural end. He reasoned thus. Would it profit a man if he gained the whole world and lost his own soul? His own manhood and self-respect? And why should not we be willing to sacrifice the few and the good of the few for the many? and for the improvement of the race of mankind, for the perpetual good of a godlike and fixed law-abiding race. Our hero was truly a man, and we fear we shall not look upon his like again. He loved the sinner, but despised his erroneous ways. He would not prosecute any one for money and worldly glory, but would slay millions for justice and principle, and he taught as one having authority and not as the scribes, hypocrites or Pharisees. The weakest point of his character, to live amongst haughty sinners, was his wonderful benevolence, which caused him to confide too much in what people said. He believed everybody was honest like himself, until he had gone through the fiery ordeal of martyrdom, when he turned his heart into adamant and treated everybody as a viper and hypocrite. But notwithstanding all his doubts and suspicions of adults, he had a never failing faith in nature and nature's God, and looked always lovingly and confidingly to little children. For, said he often, of such is the kingdom of heaven. This latter quality still proved that the man was a genuine naturalist, who lost nothing by the storms through which he had passed. But yet he lost faith in adults whilst he continued to cherish the pure and innocent of God's heritage. The family physician of Victor Juno had his doubts about the recovery of our hero, until the second week, when his symptoms seemed to become more favourable. At this time General Armington had learned for the first time that the saviour of his daughter's life was lying in a dangerous condition, which was caused by the Herculean and humanitarian efforts the noble Victor made in behalf of the family of the general when the latter instantly repaired to the home of the delirious man, and asking it as a particular favour to see the hero, was by special favour admitted to his bedside, when, in apparent agony, he was compelled to listen to the recital of the love he bore, and pain he underwent for the daughter of General Armington on the occasion of the accident. The general at once desired to render any assistance in his power to alleviate the precarious and painful state of Victor Juno. The nurse thanked the general, but said that his physician did all for him that was possible, and he thought that a change for the better was apparent, at least so said the skilful doctor a few hours previous. The general returned to his home to his daughter, who was also lying on a bed, suffering of severe nervous prostration, and who should be sitting by Miss Lucinda Armington's bedside but Deacon Rob Stew who did his utmost to exhort and encourage the fair damsel, who was the apple of his evil eye. General Armington related all he had seen at Victor Juno's bedside in the hearing of his daughter and deacon too. The latter sat with eyes and mouth wide open, however with a distressed look on his face, and upon close inspection by an expert it would have shown that a fiendish expression passed spasmodically over his harrowed phiz whilst he observed with what great interest, grief, and sincere sorrow Miss Armington listened to the story that her father was relating. The deacon saw that betimes Miss Armington was enchanted, especially when the father related what Victor Juno said of his daughter's rescue, whilst, on the other hand, she looked downcast when her father spoke of Victor's dangerous condition. The deacon, Judas like, hid his feelings thoroughly from the gaze of either the general or his daughter. The latter, however, always felt uncomfortable in the presence of deacon Stew. In fact, she despised the man, but after all respected him on account of his high position in their church, as also for his religious graces. After carefully listening to the general's recital of what occurred, as well as to the praises which General Armington gave in behalf of the noble Victor Juno, the deacon said in the most solemn manner, General, I am deeply grieved at the sad story of this young physician, as well as being sorrowful to find your noble daughter sick after such a providential escape. It is my heartfelt prayer that all may come right very speedily, and I hope it will. Thank you, interrupted Miss Armington. I am sure the excellent young gentleman who has been so brave and unselfish will soon be restored to health for God would not permit such a noble benefactor to pass away so early, whilst he is capacitated to do mountains of generous acts toward his fellows. "'Daughter, I am delighted to hear you express yourself so gratefully and kindly toward this heroic gentleman, for you seldom have anything favourable to say of the male gender,' responded General Armington. To these sentiments the deacon ironically replied, Certainly Miss Armington could not well feel otherwise toward a man who saved her life, for he must be a brave and worthy creature." "'Thanks, Deacon Stew,' she said. "'I am not ungrateful. Moreover, dear father, I feel that we should employ the best medical talent to save Mr. Juno from a tedious and protracted illness.' "'You are very thoughtful, my darling,' responded the parent. I think the deacon is about the best judge who is skilful in the medical profession. Moreover, brother Stu, you would be the ablest man to select a good, pious doctor as I believe greatly in the virtue of grace, which you know must be attended with heavenly results. General, your wisdom and Christian worth and valour charm me, and whilst you were speaking my mind was directed to a plan, or rather to a very eminent Christian physician, who never fails in the fulfilment of anything he undertakes. That is, if it is in the power of sinful mortal to perform," responded the jealous and hypocritical deacon. End of chapter 3